Revelation chapter 7. Let me start this way. Chronologically, in the scheme of things, when you consider what's the timing of Revelation chapter 7, understand that the events that we're going to read about today take place in the middle of the tribulation. So the tribulation is about seven years. Well, it is seven years. And so this is about three and a half years into the tribulation process. And what we have here is a pause in the action following uh, the uh, opening of the first six seals uh, of the title deed of the earth. Jesus has taken possession of the title deed of the earth, and as each of the seals on, uh, on that deed are opened, then what happens is they correspond to events that transpire during the tribulation period. They correspond to the outpouring of God's wrath on a sinful, unrepentant world. And so <clears throat> what, we're, what we're looking at here is, uh, you know, a, a pause. Six seals having been opened, and now all of a sudden, God hits the divine pause button. And during this pause, we read Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, after these things. Now, no pun intended, but I hit the pause button right there, and I asked the question, after what things? And what it's talking about here is after the events of Romans cha- or of Revelation chapter 6. After the six, se- six seals have been opened, uh, which have released both divine and human wrath upon the earth, um, we have seen Antichrist come on the scene, He promised peace, but he brought war. He brought famine. He brought destruction. We saw God unleash cosmic destruction on part of, uh, in addition to that man inspired destruction that the Antichrist brings. And so God's cosmic destruction is great earthquakes and islands physically moving out of their place. And we see during this time, it's it's a time of unparalleled wrath upon the world. And so when this wrath is being poured out, men, chapter 6 of Revelation tells us, kings, rulers, both rich and poor, they're hiding in caves to escape the wrath of God. And we see at this time, the scene suddenly shifts in Revelation chapter 6 from the wrath that's happening on the earth Now all of a sudden the scene shifts up into heaven and in heaven what we see is that there's a group of people that are under God's altar. They are clothed with white robes and these are people who have been killed during the tribulation for faith in Jesus Christ. The heart of God the Father is that none should perish but that all should have everlasting life. And so even though up until the point to where, hey, the church is out, God's taken the faithful to heaven, and now he's going to pour out his wrath, he's still not done. (coughs) He's still searching the world to find every last person that he can possibly save, that he can possibly redeem. And so we find these group of people there, they're in heaven, they've been martyred for their faith, and they're asking the Lord Jesus, how long until you avenge our blood? 
And what Jesus says to them is, hey guys, be cool, wait, you know, you're, you're here in heaven, but I'm going to add to your numbers, basically. He says, there's more folks like you that are going to be martyred for their faith. And wait until, you know, they uh, are martyred for their faith. Wait until I've redeemed more people. And, and, and so this is the, the idea. Now, so as we transition now, after these events that we've just talked about, now we come to Revelation chapter 7, and the focus shifts um, to ultimately looking at the, revel- the, the saints that Jesus promised would be added to. The, the martyrs, they're going to be added to those who already have died during the tribulation period. How God is going to pull a rabbit out of the hat during what is the worst time that is ever going to come upon the face of the earth. And as we get into it today, I'm reminded of something the Apostle Paul said. I'll put the scripture up on the screen. It's Romans 8.28. You all know it if you've been a Christian for any length of time. Here's what Paul says. <clears throat> he says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. This is not saying that all things are good. Some things are really, really bad, you know. <clears throat> the, the, the people will, they lose a loved one, and some well-meaning Christian will try to give them some sort of Christian platitude and encouragement, and they'll, they'll quote this verse. They'll say, hey, it's, it, all things are good. No, all things aren't good. Death is not good. The death of, of God's saints, while it's precious in his sight, it was never his intention that we should taste death. That's a result of sin entering into the world. And so it is not good, but God promises to work all things together for our good. And the Greek word that's used in that phrase, work together, Romans eight twenty eight, it's the word synergy. And in the Greek, what it means is a combined action or operation. And what this is promising is that God is going to take a combined action of what Satan intends for evil, and he's going to work it together for good. Brenda and I watched a movie last week. I highly recommend it. It's a movie called Noble. And it, uh, you, you can watch it. You can find it on iTunes. Um, it tells the story of a gal named Christina Noble. She was uh, an Irish woman, is an Irish woman. She was born in Dublin. Now, this gal had a train wreck life. Get this. She, she grew up poor. Uh, her father was an alcoholic. Her mom died when she was 10 years old. She was sent to live with relatives, and one of her uncles uh, physically, sexually abused her while she was sent there. Ultimately, that family decided they didn't want to keep uh, uh, Christina and her three siblings, and so they dropped them off at an orphanage. The orphanage ultimately separated them all. They told Christina at one point that all of her siblings were dead, Um, and so she was raised in this orphanage setting. When she was 16, she was gang-raped, and she became pregnant. She had the baby... The baby was there with her in the government facility that she lived in as a minor at 16. She, uh, you know, just this little infant, she's, she's, she's nursing and, and nurturing this infant. She leaves the room, 
uh, she comes back in uh, a few minutes later, the baby's gone. They had taken the baby and they adopted the baby out. She never saw that child again. Took her baby from her. So just one thing after another, it gets worse. She grows into adulthood. She, she uh, moves out. She's on her own. She meets a man. She marries him. He abuses her physically, beats her. Now, incredible, right? Through all of this, this gal maintains her faith in the Lord. And it's now in the early 70s, the Vietnam War is going on. She's aware of it, you know, as we would be aware of any modern events that were, were going on. But she's not particularly, you know, fixated on it or thinking about it. But all of a sudden, she starts having dreams. And she's having dreams, and it's Vietnamese children crying out to her, saying, come and help us. And so what she does is she decides, as, as a single woman... She goes over to Vietnam to begin ministering to, taking care of, trying to help Vietnamese children. What that turned into is a thing called the Christina Noble Children's Foundation. And to date, almost a million children have been beneficiaries of health care and food and shelter because of what this woman has done. Now, she wrote a book, this, this, this gal, Christina Noble. It's called Bridge Across My Sorrow. And in her book, um, she shares that in addition to all of those hor- horrible experiences I just shared with you, on top of even that, she's a breast cancer survivor. She, she's had uh, cardiac surgery, open-heart surgery, because she had a heart attack. And she, you know, suffered through all of these things. But here's what she says, quote, These are all just things that happened on the journey. I'm not wealthy in terms of money, but my life is rich. Now, how on earth can a woman who has been through so much, and I've met people who have had one of those things happen in their life, and it's completely train wrecked them, and just put them in a place of, you know, of overwhelmed, and I'm not minimizing any of these things, but how can a woman who has endured so much say, hey, you know what, my life is rich. The answer is synergy. This gal, she attributes everything in her life, she says everything that's happened has been fundamental preparation for what I'm doing now. Incredible, absolute, mind-boggling story. And and the reason I tell that story is because for me, as I read Revelation chapter 7, man, that's the big idea of this entire book. This entire book is summed up on God is using the atrocities of what will be the worst time on the face of the earth. He's using all of that to redeem what we're going to see, 144,000 Jewish people who are, every one of them, a modern day or a, a future tribulation saint slash Billy Graham. They are going to be God's witnesses on this earth. And he uses incredible tribulation and trial and circumstance to do that work in their life. And maybe today you have been going through overwhelming experiences and trials and so on. And I would just say to you, if you hear nothing else, I want you to hear and see in Revelation chapter 7 that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. 
So Revelation chapter 7, we continue. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Ishakar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now you back up to verse 1 and you see there that there's these four angels that are positioned, that are stationed at the four corners of the earth. You see them at the north and south poles, as it were, and at the you know, opposite ends of the equator. They're placed in the four corners of the earth. And <clears throat> we see them blocking the wind. That's their order, is to block the wind. Now, the entire water cycle on the earth is dependent on the trade winds and on the winds that blow in the earth. They're, they are what, uh, where, you know, the, the, the clouds collect the moisture and the winds are what drive those clouds over the earth. And this is the mechanism that God has, has, has you know, the way that God's created the earth so that the earth is watered, so that the rain is provided and so on. And so what happens is everything that makes life possible is halted for a season. And certainly this corresponds with the opening of the third seal. We saw in last, last week the opening of the third seal that there um, was uh, the, the, the famine, the great famine that spread across uh, the world and certainly this would contribute to that. We ascribe war and the pestilence and, and all that that would contribute to famine certainly would exacerbate that. And this, the four winds being held, that also is going to exacerbate the situation. Now, not only that, but when we get to Revelation chapter 11, we're going to see that there's two witnesses that are empowered by God to, to do several things. And one of the things they're empowered to do is to stop the rain for three and a half years. Now, remember, tribulation period, seven years long. They are allowed to stop the rain for three and a half years, which is precisely chronologically where Revelation chapter 7 is looking. And so, no doubt, all of these events are related. And so we read there in verse 2, the fifth angel, he appears and he shouts orders to the four other angels, which kind of gives some suggestion that, that you know, he <clears throat> has some authority over these four angels that have positioned, been positioned at the four corners of the earth. And not only are they to hold the wind back, but apparently they're also going to bring great destruction on the entire earth. And his instructions to them is, hey, 
you know, you're loaded and ready for bear, but wait to unload. Hold, hold on, you're holding the wind, that's okay. But don't destroy those four corners of the earth. Don't destroy the sea and so on. Until what? Until the servants are sealed. Now, what's up with that? What does that mean? Well, the Bible gives us a lot of examples of God's sealing his people for his protection. Um, The greatest example is in Exodus chapter 12. You guys know the story there. God, he's working on getting his his people uh, delivered from Egypt and, and all. And so he sends a message to Pharaoh, let my people go. And, Mary, and Pharaoh be, continues to harden his heart in his MO as he would say, yeah, that's fine, I'll let him go. And then he doesn't let him go. And then God sends a plague upon Pharaoh. And then, you know, okay, fine, he'll relent. I'll let him go. And then the moment comes and he doesn't let them go and God sends another plague. And all of this continues until, and the plagues keep getting worse and worse. And finally God sends message. He says, look, I'm going to destroy the firstborn. Everybody's firstborn, I'm going to destroy them all. And he warns the Israelites, he says, listen, I'm going to send the angel of death to kill the firstborn across all the land. If you want to be saved, if you want to be protected, here's what you have to do. You have to seal your doorposts with the blood of a slain lamb. The blood of a a slain lamb, a a, a slain sacrifice. Now, we know, we understand, this is a picture of Jesus Christ. This is an Old Testament picture looking forward to the Lamb of God who would be slain, taking away the sins of mankind, delivering us from death. And so that's what these Jewish folks do. They, they, they slaughter a lamb, they take the blood of a lamb, they put it on their doorpost, they seal their doorposts, and the angel of death comes, and for every house where the blood of the lamb has been put on the doorpost, that angel of death passes over that house, and that becomes the feast of Passover for the Jews um, that they, they celebrate to this day. We also celebrate the Passover, understanding that it's Jesus Christ who, who has sealed us. So this is the picture here that <clears throat> these, uh, when, when this angel of death came, these folks were, prote- were protected. And God here is saying, wrath is going to be poured out, but hold on, wait until I get this 144,000 sealed. I want to protect them. I want to seal them for my glory. I want to seal them for the service that they are going to do to me, which we'll look at more in depth in just a minute. So this is what he's doing. Now, as I said, there's lots of examples in the Old Testament of this. It's not the first time that God has sealed his servants. He sealed Noah's family in the ark to protect them from the flood that he was going to pour out. He sealed Rahab's family when he destroyed Jericho. Uh, He sealed Lot's family Um, when he poured his judgment out on Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, He sealed the Israelites in the Exodus, as we've just talked about, on Passover. And listen, God has sealed you and me as well. If you belong to Christ, if you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, God has sealed you with his Holy Spirit. Listen to what Paul told the Ephesians. He said, in him, in Jesus, you also trusted After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, and uh, until the redemption of the purchased 
possession to the praise of his glory. And so God seals those who he wants to protect. Now, with that in mind, I would refer you to the last sentence of Revelation chapter 6, where a question is asked. It seems to be a rhetorical question. Here's the question as they conclude the chapter. For the great day of his wrath has come, and here's what they ask, who is able to stand? Well, listen, that's not a rhetorical question. That question is what Revelation chapter 7 answers. Who is able to stand? Only those who are sealed by God. And I ask you the question at this point in the message, are you sealed by God? Do you have God's Holy Spirit living inside you? Has Jesus Christ forgiven you of your sins? Now, before you answer that question, I just ask you to consider the, the, the companion question to it. Which I, which I always ask and I talk about frequently, and if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard this, so bear with me. The question is this, how do you know you're going to heaven? How do you know that you're going to heaven? The way that you answer that determines everything. It, it tells me whether or not you've been sealed. Because if your answer to how you know you go to heaven has some sort of a component to where you say, well, you know, I'm a good person. Well, I hope my good works outweigh my bad works. Well, I keep the Ten Commandments. Well, you know, I'm not Charles Manson or anything, and, you know, I'm not a bad guy. You know, that's, you know, or if it's even, hey, I believe in Jesus. That's how I know I'm going to heaven. But there's still a component of I believe in Jesus and I keep the Ten Commandments. Then you're not really trusting in Jesus. So you have to answer the question, how do you know you're going to heaven? If your answer has anything to do with you, with your performance, with, you know, the getting it right, with being, you know, well-pleasing in God's sight because of what you've done other than confess Jesus by faith, then what I would suggest to you today is that you're not trusting in Christ, you're trusting in yourself, and that is not going to get you to heaven. And I need to, to, to invite you to do business with God based on the simple fact that the Bible says all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. But listen, the gift of God is eternal life, not through your works, but through Jesus Christ's work on the cross. That he died on the cross for your sins in your place. And he offers to you today eternal salvation if you'll confess him as Lord. And I'll give you an invitation at the end of the service today to do precisely that. And so very important. So this question isn't so rhetorical at the end of Revelation 6. The question is, hey, the great day of God's wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And the answer is only those who are sealed by God. Now, I want you to notice the angels, what is their description of the ones that they were to seal? You'll see it there in verse 3. The, the instruction to these angels, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed, who is it? The servants of our God. We've sealed the servants of our God. That word servants, very critically important. Turn to uh, Colossians chapter 3, if you would. We'll come back here in just a minute to Revelation 7. But in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, If then you were raised with Christ, and this isn't if then and maybe you are, maybe you aren't. It's if, then, and you are. He's writing to a group of believers. And so in the Greek, he's saying, 
hey, you've been raised with Christ. So, it, so the idea is, since you've been raised with Christ, he continues, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, he says, put to death your members which are on the earth. And he goes on to talk about the different you know, physical activities that you need to put to death. Um, and, you know, those, those things that, that, you know, fornication and uncleanness and passion and so on. And what follows is Paul is saying, look, there's stuff in your life you got to put to death. There's stuff that you need to put on as a Christian. There's stuff that you need to put off as a Christian. There's stuff that you need to press in and press on in, some activities like lying and so on, things that you need to, uh, or, or, you know, not lying and so on, things that you need to press on in. And so this is the whole rest of the book. Now, when Paul is talking to these believers... What he's saying here is, is he's, he's touching on major doctrines of the Christian faith. Three major doctrines to be in particular. And I'm not going to belabor this. I'm going to give you just a shortened view of this because I'm going somewhere with this. But basically, he talks about justification. He talks about glorification. And he talks about sanctification. $5 Christian words, what do they mean? Well, the doctrine of justification is there in verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, or since you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. That's the doctrine, that's touching on the doctrine of justification. Justification is, hey, God has justified you before himself. He's holy, he's pure, he's righteous. You were none of those things, neither am I. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. But God justified us. How? He raised us up with Christ. Okay? He, Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place. We have been justified. Now, he moves on from this doctrine to the doctrine of glorification in verse 4. He says, when Christ who was our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The Bible teaches that we as children of God, there is coming a day when we go to heaven when we will be glorified together with Jesus. The Bible says that. It's not blasphemy to say. We'll be glorified together with God. Now, most Christians live their life with those two doctrines predominating how their entire world out view. And while they might not even know to say, you know, the doctrine of glorification or the doctrine of justification, the way they would articulate it is this way. What's your testimony, pal? Okay, well, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. And what I always like to do is put it on a timeline. You're saved at 20, go to heaven at 80. What's in between? 60 years. Your entire life is what's in between. And if your life is, is just composed of I'm saved and I'm going to heaven, you've completely missed it. Because what God does with you and with me, once he leads us to himself, once he redeems us, once he cleanses us and gives us a new nature, he doesn't just take you out and say, oh, great, they're justified. Now let's glorify them. What does he do? He leaves you here. That's what he does. And he leaves you here because he, there's a work that he wants to do in you and through you. This is the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification is where you work out your salvation, where you put stuff off, where you put stuff on, where you press on in a particular direction. You're not doing this to earn a right standing with God. You're doing this because you have a right standing with God in Christ. And so now you have this duty. You have this responsibility. 
With that in mind, go back now to Revelation chapter 7, and notice what he says here is he's saying, don't put everything on pause, because I got 144,000 servants that I want to unleash to do a work. The world is at this moment going to hell in a handbasket. The world at this moment has already experienced 25% mortality by war and famine and destruction and disease and people realize God's wrath is being poured out and in the middle of all of this, God saves 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams and says, sick them, go get them. And what we're going to see during this time, well, we won't, God willing, we'll be in heaven, uh, having been raptured as a church. But what the world will see at this time is that there is a God in heaven who's angry and upset, who's pouring his wrath out, but he loves the world. And God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And even after he takes the church out, God still asks the question, who else can I save? Is there anybody else I can pull out? Anybody else at all? I was a firefighter. We got a call. There was a fire burning. We rolled out, and my partner and I go in. We go in, and, you know, fire in real life is not like they show you on TV. You go inside a burning building, close your eyes. That's what it looks like. You, you don't see nothing. We're crawling on the floor. We find a lady unconscious. We drag her out, and we start. We, she's, she's, she's unconscious. We're breathing for her, and all of a sudden she comes to When she came to, my question wasn't, you know, all right, well, whatever, let's go do, you know, where are we going to have dinner? No, this place is still burning, and I'm asking her the question, is there anybody else in there? Is there anybody else inside? And ultimately, we would pull her husband out and resuscitate him as well, and that's the question that God asks. Is there anybody else? Is there anybody else that I can rescue? Anybody else? Because God loves you, because he loves me, because he loves the world. And so this is what's going on here. And God is going to find these servants who he can can save. Servants being the operative word. We quoted it during the anointing of of the deacons today, but Mark 10.45, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Last week, I talked to you about the nine values of our church. We as a church, we've identified the nine top values. We have many values, but you can only focus on a handful of them. It's been said that if you focus on, you know, if you, if you say everything's important, then, if, then practically speaking, nothing's important because you can't do everything. You can only focus on what you can do. So we as a church, we have prayerfully considered what are the nine values the nine top priorities that we're going to focus on. And, one of, and it informs everything that we do, all of the decision that we make, all the policies that we make, all the ministry that we do are informed by these nine values. And one of those values is the value of service. Here's how we articulate it. We say, at Reliance Church, we are contributors, we are not consumers. We're contributors, we are not consumers. Let me tell you, there's a big difference between the two. There is an ocean of difference between the two. A consumer comes to church and says, what can you give me? What do you have to offer me? You know, what, what's convenient for me? What services are convenient? Are your services entertaining? Do you have a good seat for me? Do you have a good parking place for me? 
Pastor Romaine, who was Pastor Chuck Smith's assistant pastor uh, years ago, somebody showed up at the church, and they came into the church with this question. Hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big deal, and, uh, you know, I'm not just going to attend anywhere. I want to know what, what Calvary Chapel's got to offer me. And Romaine looked at this guy, sized him up and down. He says, we have two things to offer you here. They're glass. They're the doors behind you get out. And he kicked him out. This guy coming in as a consumer. Hey, I'm coming to consume. He goes, no, 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 we're not looking for consumers. We're looking for contributors, people who understand I'm coming to serve. Now, that's the expectation of you as a believer, as a follower of Christ. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, I don't expect you to serve. I pray that you get saved. And God then, he will make you a new creation in Christ. He's given you gifts and talents and abilities and he'll, in making you a new creation. Then he'll set you with vision and with purpose. We here, we are, we are not consumers, we are contributors. That's our attitude. A contributor comes in with the attitude that says, how can I help? What do I have to offer? How can I participate in somebody's edification, leading them to grow in the knowledge and image of Christ and follow him? And so back here, chapter 7, as we're looking at it and what's going on, man, it's the absolute worst of the worst of the tribulation period. And what happens is God saves and he seals 144,000 Jews. He covers them from what is to come, protecting them from the wrath that's being poured out. And he calls them servants. The Greek word is doulos. It means this, one who gives himself up to do God's will in extending and advancing his cause among men. Let me say that again. A servant is somebody who gives himself up, gives himself over to who? To what? To God, understanding, listen, God has a a plan, a purpose, a cause, and so I'm giving myself over to God so that he can advance his cause among men. This is the idea here. This is the attitude, and this is what's happening with this 144,000 Jews. Now, understand, these are not Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? The Jehovah's Witnesses tell you they're the 144,000. This is not the Jehovah's Witnesses. These are Jews. How do we know this? Let's read on. So verse 9 says, after these things I looked. After what things? After God saves 144,000 Jews and after he then employs these servants to go out as missionaries, as ambassadors for Christ in the midst of a world of turmoil and, and catastrophe, and he says, you're saved, go get them. Go get to work. There's people that are in that burning building of, a, of an earth, that, and I put my wrath on hold. You're sealed. Go get them. Go get it done. So it's after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude. Now, what John does now, God's given him this vision of earth. He's been looking at earth. God takes his chin, and now he's looking up in heaven. That's the vision has shifted. And so after these things I looked, focus now on heaven, behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. Remember Revelation chapter 6. You got, this, you got all these saints that are saved. They're there under the altar. They're wearing right robes. And they say to Jesus, how long until you avenge us? And he says, be cool. I'm paraphrasing Jesus here. Be cool. Sit tight. 
because I got more that I'm going to add to your number. Okay, so now what happens is we see that more that's added to the number. That's what we're reading here. So they're crying out. They're clothed with white robes. They've got palm branches in their hands. And they're crying out, verse 10, with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. And listen to their worship. They say, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to you, our God, forever and ever. Amen. I mean, so be it. And then one of the elders answered, saying to me, pay attention to this, one of the elders in heaven Now, this person in authority in heaven, he answers, he says to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. In other words, he's going, I don't have a clock. You're up here in charge. Why don't you tell me? So he said to me, These are the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's not what he said, is it? Now, that's not what the Bible says. What does he say? He says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple and He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Listen, he makes it clear. Who are these? He goes, these are the multitudes of people that have come out of the great tribulation. Understand, hear what I'm saying. This is not just the 144,000. This is them and everyone else, a great multitude that you can't even count, who have responded to the gospel in the time of the Great Tribulation. These 144,000 sealed witnesses have done their job. They proclaimed the gospel, and now there's, there's multitudes up in heaven saved because of it. Last week I, I had you look at Matthew chapter 24. Because Jesus there, he was asked the questions from his disciples. They asked him point blank, three things. They're like, hey, when's the temple going to be destroyed? Uh, When are you coming back? And what's going to be the sign of your coming? And so Jesus proceeded to answer these questions, and he systematically took them through how the events were going to transpire. And what we've done is looking at Matthew 24 and superimposing that over Revelation chapter 6, we saw, hey, the opening of all of these seals corresponds perfectly with what Jesus said was going to happen. You know, that what happened there, he says the Antichrist is going to come, there's going to be wars, there's going to be famines, there's going to be plagues, there's going to be earthquake, there's going to be martyrdom. These are the first of the six seals that have been opened. And the next event that Jesus said was going to happen in that Matthew chapter 24 sequence, well, you see it in Matthew 24, verse 14. I'll throw it on the screen for you for time's sake. Here's what Jesus says. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom, very next thing, will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, People mistakenly read these, verse, these, these, these words of Jesus and they say this. They say, listen, the church has to evangelize the world and it's not until the whole world has heard the gospel 
until Jesus is going to rapture the church. That's not what this is saying. Now, the church does need to evangelize the world. We do need to share our faith. It's critically important. Why? Because the tribulation doesn't have to come for people that you know and love to get hit by a bus. We will all stand before the Lord. Tomorrow's promise to no man. Your life is like a vapor. You're here for a little while, and then you're gone. We, there's an urgency to sharing our faith. So we need to do that. But what Jesus is saying here is that what's going to happen is, is that there will be, at some point, the rapture of the church. There's nothing prophetically in between that event and us right now. That event could happen right this moment, right while I'm preaching. It could happen on your <clears throat> drive home. It could happen tomorrow. <clears throat> Jesus rapturing his church, it's, a, it's, an, it's, it's an imminent thing. And what Jesus is saying here is that after the rapture of the church, God is still going to be working and moving, and the gospel is going to preach to the entire world, right? As a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come, and this is what we're reading here. It's people from every nation, tongue, and tribe who are standing before the throne now as a result of what's transpired during the Great Tribulation. Charles Spurgeon said this. I'll just say this in closing and we'll just wrap it up. Charles Spurgeon, he said, the same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sin. I want you to reflect upon these Jews in this time of tribulation. And I want you to take note of this fact. That arguably they have had some immense persecution. They are living in a time when a quarter of the world has already died catastrophically. They're living in a time when men and women, kings, and, and you know, they're hiding in caves. is not a fun time. And what's happened is those experiences and God's grace have combined that 144,000 of these Jews have said, Lord, have mercy on us, we're sinners. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and we invite him into our hearts. And they've been sealed by God. They're being protected by God, and they've now been mobilized by God. And they've gone out, and numerous people, an innumerable number of people have responded, and there's been a great revival. Why? Because there's a whole section of the earth that even though life for them is hell on earth, literally, it did, those events did not harden their hearts. It softened their hearts to turn and to cry out to Christ. The point of application for us today, while these are yet future events, and events that, God willing, none of us will have to, to, to see with our own eyes because we will have been raptured, nevertheless, some of us today are going through trial and we're going through hardship. And I ask you, are they making you better or are they making you bitter? The hardships that God allows in your life, are they making you better or are they making you bitter? Can you respond like Christina Noble and say, Lord, you're using all of this for that. Pastor Chuck Smith had a saying in his memoirs. He said, you know what I've discovered in my old age? That all of life is preparation for something else. That everything prepared me for my next step of faith. And maybe today you come into church and you're saying, you know what, it's been pretty tough. 
And, and, and God, you, you know, I'm losing my house. I've lost my job. I've lost my health. I've whatever it is. And maybe it has been pretty tough. And you, maybe you've been going, God, don't you see? Don't you care? Like, have I done something wrong? Are you punishing me for something? And frankly, maybe, you know, sometimes there's consequences to our sins. Sometimes, you know, you reap what you sow. And there's things that you do and you go, oh, man, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reaping what I've sown. I've done what I shouldn't have done. This is a consequence. Yeah, sometimes that's it. So you repent and you, you ask forgiveness. You move on. But sometimes God just allows stuff in your life. And it's not for any other reason that it's preparation for something else. And so these 144,000 Jews, they respond, they're softened by it. How do you respond to that? 